So tonight I have uh, three central objectives in our talk tonight. Order and Chaos, if you're following along, is the title. And my three objectives are uh, to, to better apprehend the character of God. I know that's a lofty task. Uh, the second is to, to better understand the enemy of our souls. And the third is to assist in increasing our faithfulness to God. So those are, those are my three high tasks here. <laughs> so let's open in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for today. You are a glorious, exalted, high God, full of awesome wonder and awe. And uh, you are entirely and completely distinct from your creation. We owe you our lives, our thoughts, our love, our gratitude, and our faithfulness. We ask that you would help us here tonight as only you, the sovereign, can. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So chaos. I never thought that I would describe chaos as a trip to the Charlotte Library, the children's library, but that's where we found ourselves yesterday. One definition of chaos is a state of perpetual confusion. So we, we took the boys to a play yesterday and uh, went to the library. And the library was not messy. The books were ordered and everything was put away in its proper place and right where it was supposed to be. But that library had all the appearance of good and orderness and place, but it was a den of asps. It was a place of lies and deceit, and it was a very dangerous place, far dangerous than books lying on the floor for you to trip over. So chaos includes the idea of inherent unpredictability. Unpredictability in human behavior as well as the behavior in the creation. And we see this in natural disasters, for example. We see this in wars. And uh, if you think about it, everything that's scary in the physical world is really related to its unpredictable nature. I had a boiling pot of water the other day and I left my eyes off of it for just a moment. I came back and it was just spilling all over the, all over the stove. It's unpredictable. So of course, from the physical perspective, chaos is not the dominant environment that we live in. And we're, we thank God for that, right? That these, these disorders in the physical universe um, they're, they're relatively manageable because God makes them manageable. He restrains himself. He restrains the creation. And so they come and they go. They're temporary. But in the metaphysical reality, in the spiritual reality, it is a vast sea of lies and disorder, dysfunction, chaos. So when we consider what those promoting a pagan cosmology are really suggesting that chaos, disorder, unpredictability is actually tied to our freedom. That's what they're saying. I was thinking of the current uh, president's slogan, which was to build back better. Well, in order to build back better, you have to tear it down first, which 
there's times to do that. But we might push back and say, well, we, we're not tearing down something that is good. That's chaotic, right? So we drift along in a fog of a post-fact world of absurdity. A woman is a man, glory is shame, evil is good, good is evil. And how did all this come about? Well, the primeval revolt that we are witnessing is the rejection of God's moral order. It's a rejection of who God is. It's a rejection of his character. It's a rejection of what God calls good. Well, now it's viewed as not good. You see, God determined to make things that were not God. And he called it good. And now we say that it's not good. It needs to be torn down. So this is coming from the willful denial of the primary foundational distinction, and that is the infinite difference between the creator God and the uncreated existence. That's where all this is coming from. It's important that we understand that. In the revolt against this chief distinction, the attempt to erase all these subsequent distinctions follow. And so we were looking at that in the first couple of sessions, but we also looked how depraved man is hardwired to nature worship, right? We looked at Romans 1, that uh, nature worship is, in fact, pagan cosmology. That's what pagan cosmology is. It's nature worship. Another term for pagan cosmology is the devil's cosmology. But is his cosmology a viable alternative? That's one of the questions we want to answer. Does chaos actually bring liberation? So if you were to look up the definition of chaos, one of the definitions listed is the supposed eternal chaos that existed before the creation of the universe. So let's turn to Genesis 1. And we'll launch from here. So in the creation account of six days, we can parse this in different ways, but the first parsing comes in between the third and the fourth day. So the first three days are the, the uh, forming stage, the forming stage of the creation. God is forming his creation. The second three days are the filling stage. So it's an important distinction. The first three is the forming. The, the second three days is the filling, the beautification of his creation. So we're going to read about the first stage, the forming stage, and that's Genesis 1 through 13. So you can follow along with me in your Bibles. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were underneath or under, excuse me, the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, 
plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed each according to its kind on the earth and it was so the earth brought forth vegetation plants yielding seed according to their kinds trees bearing fruit in which is their seed each according to its kind and the law and God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the third day in Isaiah he makes a remark, a statement, he says that God created the world to be inhabited. And that is, a, that is an interesting point of observation. It is the forming that sets the stage for the filling of the earth with light, with color, with seasons, with beauty, life, plants, animals, and man. So these initial separations, these initial distinctions, ended up moving forward into smaller, more uh, distinct separations, right? So God created the universe through separation. So we also want to notice that there is order in what God does that God doesn't fill the earth and then form it, right? He forms it and then he fills it. Now, some have mistakenly translated or interpreted this idea that without form and void means chaos, that God created and there was this chaotic existence that took place and sort of he had to work to tame the chaos. In ancient uh, Ugaritic literature, which is uh, an old ancient Semitic language similar to Hebrew, one of the explanations for the universe was that there was this chaos of existing matter, so that matter always existed, and it is eternal. Well, of course, that presents a major problem if uh, matter is eternal, then it is divine. And so the argument is throughout ancient pagan literate, uh, literature that, that we come to know these things that uh, chaos and good or good and order, or, or rather chaos and order are arch enemies and that they are equal in terms of existence. And so there's this battle. That's what the pagans believed. But that's not the case. There was always order. So without form and void doesn't mean chaos. Grammatically, it's possible. It's a possible interpretation. But it is not the preferred grammatical interpretation. And we don't have time to unpack the grammar. But let's just look at the theology. Let's look at the theology. So when you add who God is, it becomes clear that in no way that we should interpret this idea without form and void as, as chaos. We have a God of order. There's order and purpose in everything that God does. There is purpose and order in the unfolding of each day of creation. The earth was covered by water. In other words, it had no form. It was water. It was a round ball without form. Uh, there, was nothing, there was nothing wrong with it. There was nothing sinful about it. There was nothing chaotic about it. Uh, there was nothing impure about it. It was just a round ball of water. So there's no battle here with the chaos monster. This is how God began. He began with this ball of water. It's empty because it has not been prepared to contain life yet. So the character of God is very significant here. And we see aspects of God's character in these passages that we just read in the creation account. The first thing we want to see is that God is a God of order. We see that he cares for his creation. He provides for his creation. He doesn't just make Adam, for example, uh, as a fetus in, in a pouch somewhere, right? He makes him as a full grown mature man. Think of the plants. He doesn't provide soil before the plants. The plants need 
to grow. The soil has a purpose. It has a telos. He doesn't provide animals before plants because they need something to eat, right? What are they going to eat? He doesn't prepare man before the animals because man is what? Vice regent. He, he is placed there to rule, uh, to rule over the animals and to rule over the earth. So if he's created before the plants and animals, then he has nothing to rule over. He is a man with no telos. The plants, he cared for enough about the plants to provide what? Fresh water for them, right? Why does he do that? Why? Because God is a God who cares for his creation. He loves his creation. He cares for it. He wants it to flourish. He wants it to prosper. He doesn't make woman before man because woman was made for man. Woman was a helpmate made for Adam. Her purpose is that she is a fit helper. So God provides for his creation. And this becomes a major theme throughout the book of Genesis, doesn't it? I mean, think about Genesis 22. God provides a ram in the thicket in the place of Isaac. So the whole, one of the whole major themes of Genesis is that God is a provider. He provides for what is his. And so there's theology right from the beginning. And this makes it, I think, easier to deal with a host of other issues when we see the goodness of God and the provision of God and the care of God right from the very beginning. God intends for his creation to flourish, to provide and care for it. In fact, the word for, when you look at the word for hovering, is actually, can actually be translated as brooding. It's actually better understood as brooding. That God, by his spirit, is brooding over his creation. He's brooding over the waters. He's caring for it. And it's not wind, by the way, but it's the spirit of God. It's not the wind. This is not an impersonal force. This is a personal God, as we heard about this morning. This is a personal, loving, providing, caring God. So this is important when we start thinking about unfolding even further this idea of a beautiful tapestry through the distinctions that God has created. He blends his creation into a beautifully woven tapestry that is fit for its counterpart, you see? So God's glory becomes most visible through distinction. And this is a central reason why Calvary is the place where God is most glorified, where the rebel sinner and the holy God of the universe meet together. The cross is where the perfect sinner meets the perfect savior. It's a wonder of wonders for us to think through that the two furthest points of opposite come together in perfect matrimony. Sinner and God are wedded together at the cross. So God is most glorified at the cross in the joining of these two polar opposites. This speaks to the sufficiency of God. This speaks to the splendor of God, to the goodness of God, that he cares for those that are his, and he is the perfect fit for the sinner. So, the Bible is very unified. The Bible is very unified. God's word is very unified. It's very important for us to understand that the devil's cosmology, which is the opposite of, of what we just read, it's the opposite of what we've been talking about. The devil's entire revolutionary movement is a cosmological revolt which places evil on the same level as the creator. The, 
This lie of an eternal chaos implies that evil is equal to good in power and is thus eternal and divine. And if it is eternal, equal, then all that's left is to absorb it together as one. If evil is equal to righteousness and conflict inevitably results then let's just remove the distinction and you'll remove the conflict. This is the lie. This is one of the lies that's driving the leftist propaganda train. That there is no evil and there is no good. And notice how that term evil is being faded out in the culture, right? You're finding few and few people that are willing to even say and call out what is evil. And these placating so-called pastors are fitting right into that. Uh, Pastors all across the land are unwilling to call evil what it is. And so this root of absurdity that has transferred into the thinking in today's cosmology, this is a rebellious attempt to flatten out the creation structures and divinely ordained furniture of the universe and flatten out what is good and flatten out what is evil. But we see all around us that God's governance of his creation is by means of a moral order and distinctions are not up for debate and they're not on the ballot, but they're fixed. They're fixed. This is God's universe and no created being or coalition of created beings can present any disruption in God's ultimate order and plan and goal. He will see his plan out in the fullest measure. Every dot, every tittle, every I, every T will be crossed. Everything will be done according to his sovereign plan that he ordained from the beginning. So to illustrate this, let's turn to Job. Job 40. And while you're turning there, excuse me, 41, not 40. While you're turning there, I wanted to just take a moment to talk about briefly this idea of Leviathan. <laughs> we, we love a good monster story. But Leviathan is mentioned in, in several places in Scripture, not abundantly, but there are several places in Scripture he's mentioned. And um, here in Job, I think he is set forth as a actual creature. There was an actual creature in the seas, is named Leviathan. But really, Job is seeing more than that. He's seeing really the personification of the one who is in control of the chaos of the world, and that would be the devil himself, the enemy of our souls. So he's described in the scripture as a twisting monster of the sea. He was viewed in ancient Ugaritic literature as, uh, as being uh, an alternative, as I mentioned, to the creation account, which is not true. But it sets forth chaos as an enemy of the order in creation. The Leviathan in the the mythology of the Ugarit is a primal force which stood opposed to the creation and the ordering of the cosmos. And so it's no surprise to find that historically the Hebrews saw it as the diabolical enemy of God in creation, that twisted sea creature. And so, you know, we, we think about how we consider that the nature of man is to fear dragons, right? Uh, In a later talk on biblical manhood, we're going to discuss the concept of dragon slaying as a paradigm for which to understand our masculinity as men. But monsters inspire fear. They pose an existential threat. They're scary because not being human, they're stronger and more powerful than men, and they tend to embody these forces of chaos. I mean, I have to still crack the the door of my boy's closet 
with the light on because, you know, no monsters like light, right? <laughs> so let's dive in here in Job and just read a little bit. And I want, I want us to keep these things in mind. And um, one of the reasons that we're doing this is, is so that we can see who the enemy of our souls actually is. And uh, more importantly than that, we see who God is. And so those, keeping those two points in mind, let's read a little bit of this. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird, or with, will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Earlier in the book of Job, uh, Job comments about stirring Leviathan up, those, those who are just out there to stir up trouble, to stir up wickedness, to stir up chaos. And then Yahweh says something very interesting here. He says, who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. In other words, I can do whatever I want with my creation. Which is very interesting because in the beginning of Job, we read, we read about how Satan comes, right? And, and, and so we have this whole story about how Satan brings about, brings about this disaster upon Job, right? And God allows this to happen, and he does it for several reasons. But one, chiefly, is to teach Job personally a lesson, to, to teach him, to sanctify him, to grow him in the knowledge of God. And one of the points that he's making right off of the bat is that I am God, and even the most fierce of my creation, even the strongest of my creation, is under my sovereign hand. I do what I please. It's all mine. And then he continues, this goes on. He talks about his back being made a row of shields. Uh, in, in the description of this creature, he says, his sneezing flash forth light, his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn, out of his mouth go flaming torches, sparks of fire leap forth, out of his nostrils come forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals and a flame comes forth from his mouth. I mean, this is a fire-breathing serpentine dragon. In his neck abide strength and terror dances before him. The folds of his flesh stick together, firmly cast on him and immovable. His heart is hard as stone, hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, and the ESV says, the mighty are afraid, but actually the literal translation can be rendered gods. The gods are afraid. At the crashing, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail. Nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw, and bronze as rotten wood. Arrows can't make him flee. For him, sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. And this continues. We read about in Ephesians. Six, that we must put on the armor of God, right? We must put on the armor of God. The, the, the physical 
weapons are not our warfare, right? That we battle with spiritual forces of darkness and evil and wickedness. And there's an illustration, there's a point that's coming through here. So this continues, he goes on, verse 31, he makes the deep boil like a pot. And in other words, his mere presence alters his entire domain. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. I mean, this is the creature that's most like God, right? Behind him, he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired. On earth, there is not his like a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. And listen to this. He is king over all the sons of pride. He's not talking about a crocodile. He's talking about the personification. This is, a, this is like a personification of the evil one, of the wicked one. In other places, in Isaiah 27, he's a coiling serpent, a twisting serpent, right? In fact, just go over there real quick, and we won't stay there. Keep your finger in, Job. This is talking about the future restoration or redemption of Israel. And he says, in that day, this is a, a reference to the end, the end day. There'll, there'll come a time for Leviathan. I'm sorry? 27, verse 1. There's going to come a day for Satan. His, day is, his days are numbered. And it says in, in verse 1, in that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. And then he goes on, he says, in that day, a pleasant vineyard sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it day, night and day. I have no wrath. With that I had thorns and briars to battle, right? I would march against them. I would burn them up together. You know, all this Edenic imagery that's coming through here. What is the point that God is making? That he is the keeper. He is the tender. He is the provider. There is nothing in his creation that can stand before him. He is in control of all things, and he uses all things for the furtherance of his agenda, for his goal. And of course, back in Job, Job confesses this in 42.1. He says, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God's telos remains. And he repents. Job repents. He says, these things are too wonderful for me, which I did not know. My eyes now have seen you, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So God is in control of this. The evil one is not going to have his way. The chaos and disorder that we're seeing in the universe is just temporary. And uh, God is ultimately going to judge the evil one, and he's going to judge all those that have been duped by him and that follow him into the pit, and they will be destroyed. Very sobering. So... This obscuring of divinely ordained distinctions. It's chaos. It's what it is. It's disorder. It's deceptive. And it results in the pagan spirituality, as we talked about, of monism. And monism is the idea that all is one, that there is no distinction. 
There is no separation. All things are one. That all things are essentially the same, including any God concept. And we remember when we, what we were talking about in the 1960s when the East came West. Remember that through pop culture? Through the Trojan horse of pop culture? This counterfeit spirituality came with it the elimination of God's created distinctions. Remember, Eastern religions teach that all things are essentially one. And therefore, this new form of spirituality is quite open about its suggestion that homosexuality, not hetero, sexuality. Hetero means other. Is the sacrament. Homosexuality is the sacrament of paganism. We must pay attention here that these mono or monosexual behaviors, trans homosexual behavior, all these other sexual perversions that we see, they are and have always been historically viewed as a holy celebration as it ushers in the goal of a world where there are no distinctions and all is the same, and this is the, the goal of, of, of the devil. This is what he wants. This is the goal. This is his strategy. It's helpful for us to recognize that nearly every leftist, religious, political, and social talking point has one ultimate goal in mind, and that is the same goal that their father has, that ancient serp serpent, and that is a one-world geopolitical government, one social class, one society with no families. When I was at the library yesterday, I picked up three books. The first three books I picked up all had LGBTQ agenda. And the first book was setting forth the lie of how to redefine a family that you can have two, two mommies and two daddies. The second book I picked up was Normalizing the Absent Father. You see, this is, this, is, this is all being controlled by the evil one. The people are not the enemy. They're not the enemy. They're just the tools. They're just the enlisted corporals. They have no power. They mean nothing to their to the man in charge, to the, or to the, uh, the devil who's in charge of them. They march according to his orders. They're not worth anything to him. They're just being used as pawns. So one of the major ideas in transhumanism is the joining of the non-human material with the spiritual, producing a transcendent man that can overcome disease, decay, and eventually death. And this is all part of the lie that all is one. I remember uh, recently the the remember the they used to be the Washington Redskins. And, and and remember they they took a lot of flack for the Redskin part, and so they dropped the Redskin. And for a year they were just the Washington Football Team. And, and I thought at the time. This, is, this fits perfectly. This is a nameless, distinctionless blob of nothingness. <laughs> and that's what happens when we reject the Creator and remove the beautiful, harmonious distinctions that point to His glory. We have a boring, chaotic system that is a playground for demons to wreak moral havoc, to wreak confusion, to wreak chaos. And where chaos is present, distinction is not. Where chaos is present, distinction is not. Truth is hidden. It's masked. The gospel is hidden and the way of salvation is obscured and salvation takes on a, a perverted meaning if there's no distinction between a transcendent and holy God and the man of dust. Man can write his own script, you see. That's the lie. He can write his own way. He can write his own ticket. So this is where the church shines brightest is in her personal holiness. And one way of viewing holiness is, is a life that honors these distinctions, right? That reflects the glory of God, that brings glory and honor to his name. We live in these distinctions. We honor these distinctions. We find joy in God through these distinctions. 
And then, of course, matching that living out of those distinctions and that holiness is a proclamation of biblical cosmology, which dovetails into a hot gospel that emphasizes the infinite difference between God and his creation. In contrast, the modern church today, um, you know, it acts as if Paul told Timothy that the church is the pillar and buttress of moral principles. No, the church is the pillar and the buttress of truth. And decades of neglecting theology and neglecting doctrine in the church has reduced the church to an institution of precepts and yard signs of moral platitudes. And this is why Christian nationalism will have no more lasting effects than the moral majority did. For right before our eyes, in less than three decades, the moral majority morphed into the moral minority. I found myself asking as I was driving back and forth on Broad Street last month, that what will these churches do who are desperate to remain relevant when the vestiges of morality that remain in the Bible Belt are fully rinsed from the culture? When their 9-11 memorials are viewed as a desperate, racist attempt to hold on to a bygone era of patriotism. When their classic car shows are wiped out by hyperinflation or war, what will they do then to remain relevant? And we're already seeing this happen. We have women pastors, we have worldly churches that tolerate sin, that placate perversion. It reminds me of the priest Eli who fell over backwards and broke his neck when he heard that the Ark of the Covenant had been captured and hauled away. Well, he should have known that, the, that God had departed from that Ark a long time ago. So, oh, how foolish we are today to suggest that we can capitulate to the wickedness of the culture and think that God will remain among us, that he will bless us. We want his blessing, but we want it on our own terms. So how do you preach to a nation that has changed gods and exchanged cosmologies? And in, in many ways, this resembles the apostasy which the prophets of the Old Testament faced. So deep was Israel's defection that only a movement of the Spirit, paired to severe judgment, could amend their departure from God. So what will it take to convince today, to today's believers, that biblical cosmology is the grenade that can penetrate the most fortified strongholds of today's current pagan worldview? You see, this is important. This isn't a time just to um, grow our intellectual prowess. This is a time to be armed uh, and not with pellet guns, not with pellet bullets, not with 22s. But we need real armament. We need to be prepared. I mean, sure, we can sit back and just watch and wait, and we'll know the truth and we'll be okay because we sit here and agree with everything that's being said or most everything. But what's it going to take to enlist the church to engage? I mean, we don't want to go down in history as those silent doctors during COVID who were excellent at diagnosis, but stood silent because they were unwilling to put the truth above the creation. I think of texts like John 12. Many even of the authorities believed in him, but the fear of the Pharisees they did but for the fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They love the glory of the creation more than they love the glory of God. I pray that that is not true of anyone here sitting here. We, we, we have to arm ourselves. We have to go out. We have to engage. We have to plead for souls. And we have to do it with more than just a repeated phrase. We have to train our minds and we have to train ourselves to engage in this war. 
That's what it means to be faithful. So let's drill a little bit deeper in exposing the damage pagan cosmology causes. For it leaves in its wake moral and spiritual chaos, and in time it sows the seeds of apocalyptic disorder. What does that mean? Well, consider that pagan cosmology has successfully flipped the script today. That law, human rights, wrath, judgment, justification are inherently in the hands of men. Man can self-interpret, he can self-define, and he can self-promulgate his own wicked agenda. We're being told now that divine judgment, wrath, hell, are all mythological tales of oppressive white Christian patriarchs who preach a mythological God who seeks to order the self-existent universe to further his and their own lot. That's what we're being told. Where is that coming from? It's not coming from a vacuum. That's the agenda of the devil. But let this sink in. These accusations against Christians today are strikingly similar to the one to the ones that the Apostle Paul dealt with at the church at Corinth, his his thorn in the side, you remember that, by Satan's messengers. Paul, he's just being nice to you. He's not taking any money because he's really just setting you up for an eventual looting, right? He's going to get it all at once at the end. Those Christians, they only appear to be virtuous because they're really just hypocrites, setting you up to oppress you and to further their lot in life by your acquiescence to their scary make-believe narrative. I mean, such are the timeless schemes of that twisted serpent, right? Chaos is the goal, the concealing of truth, the concealing of truth in the person, of the born-again believer who is in Christ, as Larry pointed out this morning. If you're in him, then you're going to reflect him. Be at home in your sin. Enjoy it. It's inherently healthy to indulge in your personal lust. The real enemy is the one who wants to ruin your pleasure and suppress your naturally good desires. That's what we're being told. So the devil is crafty, and he knows that he can never eliminate the truth, but he doesn't really need to. In fact, just twisting it will work just fine. He can twist it, and since it maintains an element of truth, it will be much easier to dupe the masses. But once the dupe masses follow that breadcrumb trail far enough, what's going to happen? They begin to realize something. This is far more sinister than we ever realized. (laughs) Maybe the broad path does lead to destruction. Well, we've come this far and we've converted enough of the population now at this point that we can't turn back. We're committed. You see, this has been played over and over and over again historically. We have people coming from communist nations that are screaming at the top of their lungs, you don't know where this ends. You don't know where it ends. I think of how Darwin's theory removed from the world the necessity of Christianity's God, but it did not extinguish man's worshiping nature. We talked about that. When the Enlightenment and Darwinian evolution joined forces, philosophic naturalism ended up dancing on the grave of supernaturalism. In a celebration of its defeat, man was finally free from the demands of the omnipotent holy God of the Bible. Finally free. So the church has been drinking deeply from this well of philosophic naturalism. We think natural processes are just sort of out there, chance acting upon matter. We complain about the rain, we have too much, we don't have enough. Uh, bad day at work, we chalk it up to dumb luck, we're sick, and we deal with all kinds of trials, and we often don't pause to consider that it is the Lord's doing. We rarely see God involved in our day-to-day lives, 
and many church congregants live as morally upright, practical atheists. As if God has wound the cosmos up like a clock and now it's just sort of spinning around and he's sitting back watching and waiting and he only gets involved really when there's like a major war or something, right? So we justify our decisions in life by telling ourselves that God, he's not really involved. We self-justify our loathing. We justify our sin, we justify our grumbling, we, walked around, we walk around with a whipped dog look, defeated. We have swallowed the myth of free, uninfluenced, autonomous choice. And we've swallowed the myth of man's free will. This stems from that. This mythical man apparently knows no bounds that can't be overcome by a morally neutral starting position. An island of righteousness that he maintains within and a dash of technology is really all he needs to get transcendent man over the hump. Well, professing to be wise, they became fools, lovers of darkness, unable to think straight. It never crossed their mind in their worship of modernity that their discoveries were not new, but only a fresh marketing of old lies recapitulated lies, regurgitated lies. Romans chapter 1 reveals that today's progressivism is but a throw-up of Babylonian and Greco-Roman paganism. And further beyond that, Mesopotamia, Babylon, Greece, Rome, all had their version of evolutionary explanations of origins, and yet they were honest enough not to put a lab coat on it and call it science. As one Christian apologist has repeatedly said, he says, quote, paganism needs Darwinism to make its cosmology plausible to the sophisticated 21st century man. So where's all this headed? What do you suppose this is doing to prepare the world for the four global influences of the Antichrist? Are these pagan elements that are increasingly embraced paving the way towards transhumanism? We know from scripture what the consummation of God's plot will be, don't we? We know how it's going to end. The Lion of Judah, the creator and redeemer alone is worthy to break the seals of the scroll Human beings were entrusted by their creator with the work of his hands, and man was to exercise stewardship, dominion. But the appointed stewards of the planet have by their wickedness done much to destroy the creation. Therefore, the line of Judah will send plagues. He will reclaim the title deed to the planet Earth and evict those wicked tenants from the vineyard. What a time! That will be when the day of the Lord strikes, for the worshipers of the creation will be afflicted by the creation itself. That is a huge theme through especially the major prophets. Consider the countless sobering warnings that God gives Israel if they defile the creation with their moral pollution, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. Leviticus 18.28 Today's earth dwellers are completely oblivious to the reality that this present cosmology by the word of God is reserved for fire and a massive cosmic wide cleansing by fire is coming as a prelude to the glorious third cosmology that Peter describes in his second letter in the third chapter. So this vomiting out by the cosmos of its inhabitants is described in vivid detail in Revelation. Massive earthquakes, blood-filled seas and waterways, the sun turns from blessing to cursing by becoming a laser beam of fire burning and scorching men. 100-pound hailstones from the sky, things we don't want to talk about at dinner on a Friday night. Man worships the creation and God turns the good creation into a curse and a repeat of the plague sent to Pharaoh, except on a cosmic-like scale. Likes the witch of we have never seen before. 
Consider how much the creation has been subjected by God to futility. It's, it's almost like it's pulsating, just waiting for God to give the word. Rivers, lakes here in the West, they're drying up, and man in his oblivion attributes these things to the female divine. Mother Nature's mad. But by the way, you can trace that all the way back to the, the beginning origins of paganism, the worship of the female divine. No, it's uh, Father God who's angry, and he's sending signals that he is about to evict the world's tenants. I think of Christ who warns the church at Laodicea who has become complacent in her enjoyment of the earth's resources. I'm rich. I've prospered. I don't need anything. I have all I want right here. Consider the forcefulness of his rebuke. He doesn't coddle his church. You've become useless to me by your enjoyment, your overindulgence in the creation. But it's not bad to enjoy the creation, but to overindulge in it, to look at it as your source of sustenance is sin. And he says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. That is the literal translation, is vomit. And what vivid, what vivid imagery of Christ evicting those superficially attached to his bride and chastening those who are his unto repentance. What a picture. The land is about to vomit us out. And we deserve it. We deserve to be evicted. So one caution for us here as we begin to close here. When we see what's going on, it would do us well to study the prayers of these old prophets. Because these old prophets, they understood something that we vitally need to understand in, in all churches and in this church here, everywhere that repentance starts with us, you see. The problem is not outside. The problem is here. It starts in my heart, and it starts in your heart. It starts by owning the fact that we have defiled the creation. We deserve to be evicted. We deserve everything that God has for us. It's not the rich men north of Richmond that's the problem. The problem is me, and the problem is you. And as it's been said, culture is downstream from religion, politics is downstream from the culture. So repentance starts with us. I think of Daniel's prayer, that beautiful prayer from Daniel, right? And what does he say? He starts off by saying, I repent. I repent. You see, that's the heart of an intercessor. That's the heart of one who has been cleansed, who has been justified, who has been declared righteous, who has been given grace. So the people aren't the enemy. The, the enemy of our souls is the devil, and he looks to kill, destroy, he is that twisted serpent. He is the conniver. He is the one who tries to snatch the world, uh, I'm sorry, the word from us. But he can't snatch us from the Father's hand, can he? He may run the world's system of evil, but we don't want to give him more power than he has. And nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. That's a lesson that Job needed to hear. But he will come after us to make us unproductive Christians. His flaming darts come from various angles, one of them being the paralysis that comes from a guilty conscience. So our responsibility is to resist him and to stand firm. We're not told to chase him away. We're not told to uh, bring up an accusation against him. We have no authority over Satan. He is Leviathan. We have absolutely no power to do anything 
to him or to his minions. We resist him. We flee from him. We flee from the, the coiling serpent. And we stand firm when we need to stand firm. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you because you first loved us. We were simply wallowing in our blood, flailing around, cast out, cords still attached, and you pitied us. There we were, wallowing in our blood, and you had pity on us. You picked us up, and you cleansed us, and you washed us, and you gave us a robe. You adorned us, and you brought us near to you. Thank you. Our time is short here, Lord, and the minutes are passing each day. Strengthen your church. Strengthen your church. We need it. We need your strength. We can't do these, these things on our own strength. We must depend on the one who has all the strength and who will eventually send our enemy to that fiery lake of fire forever. Until then, help us to be the overcomers that you would have us to be, that we would stand in that day and thus stand we do. Thank you, Lord. We give you all the praise and glory, and it is in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen.